Please remain standing as we come before God's Word together. We'll recite after me just a part of the Shema of ancient Israel and then adding Leviticus 19:18, which gives us what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. If you'll follow after me, Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As we mentioned, we're at the start of Deuteronomy chapter 2, and this is what happens. Then the Lord said to me, you have wandered the hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the land of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Sair. They will be very afraid of you, but do not provoke them to war, for I have not given to you any of their land, not even enough land to put your foot on. Pay them in silver for whatever food that you eat and whatever water that you drink. The Lord your God has blessed all of the work of your hands. The Lord your God has watched over you through this long journey through a vast wilderness. The Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I love the story of the Nobel laureate. A great writer who grew up in a Jewish home. And each day when his mother sent him off to school, beginning in kindergarten, through all the way through high school, she sent him not with the words, have a good day, play hard, or work hard, or behave. She sent him with these words, ask good questions. And I think when it comes to the Word of God, it is our questions that really will provide the learnings that, and the insight that God has for us from uh, the Word, especially in the Torah. And so as we come to Deuteronomy and come to the passage today, I've got lots of questions. I mean, here's the situation. They were supposed to go to the promised land. They decided not to. God punished them. They're wandering now. God says it's time to go. And so God gives them the green light to go. But then God says, but don't go here and puts up a stop sign and don't go there and puts up a stop sign. And you're not to take any land over here. And all of a sudden, a lot of prohibitions about the land they cannot take is put in front of them. So my first question is, why can't they take the land? People should be easy enough to conquer the people we're told are afraid. They remember still what God did to the Pharaoh in the Exodus. They've seen how God has miraculously sustained these people for 40 years. I mean, they are ripe for the picking. But God says no. Why not? Well, it seems a part of that answer is simply this. That the promised land is the land that God has given to Israel. That is a gift from God. But at the same time, the land of Moab, the land of Ammon, and uh, also the land of uh, Lot's descendants is uh, also a gift from God. To them. Apparently, one of the reasons you don't go and just take whatever you want is that whatever you have is a gift from God. I think the psalmist backs this up. Psalm 16, this is what the psalmist said. He said, Lord, you have assigned my cup and my portion. You have made my lot secure. In other words, God, what I have and who I am, 
That's because of you. What if we began to understand life? And what if the Israelites had understood life as strictly a gift from God? And that what God had given them was God's assignment for them. And so the children I have, whether they've accomplished what I desired or not, well, those are the children God gave me. The father they have, whether the father has done everything for them that they want, well, that's the father assigned to them. What if we learned to live with contentment with what God has assigned to us and given to us already? Part of what God is teaching here is that what you have, I have given. You're not to take more than what I've given you. And I think as Christians, we get confused about this. And we think that because God loves us, God must certainly have more for us in mind than what we have at the moment. Maybe, but probably not often. I'm reminded of that book that came out a decade ago, uh, The Prayer of Jabez. Do you remember that? And, and Christians everywhere were praying for God to enlarge their territory and give them more than they already had. Well, here's what you need to know. The rabbis in Jesus' day did not consider Jabez much of a hero at all. They said the problem with Jabez is that every good Jew is taught, take what God has given you, and that's where you live, and that's where you work, and you do the best with what God has given you. It's not that you go around with God, from God demanding more. What if we understood that what we had right now and where we were right now was God's gift to us? And that maybe we ought to just focus on that and not focus on how we could add more to our already um, blessed situation. Well, but another question occurs to me from the text is this, and that is, but, but these people, I mean, they're not the good guys. They're not the people of God. They're the enemies. They're, they're the descendants of Lot. They're the descendants of Esau. They're in the way as we go to the promised land. Can't we just go ahead? And take their land anyway. They don't deserve it. And part of the answer I think that God would give there is these people, like them or not, are your relatives. You have a lot in common with them. They go all the way back to Esau or they go all the way back to Lot. These people are really your relatives. And if we understood sometimes that when we are trying to gather more for ourselves, we are merely taking from other people who God loves. That might, I think, begin to put some of a, a, a cap on the things that we desire and the things that we chase after. But you could, you could, I think, argue, well, they're probably not great people. And the answer is the issue isn't about the kind of people they are in Moab and the kind of people they are in Sair or Ammon. The issue is this, what kind of people are you going to be when you deal with them? And so God gives them these strict instructions. Pay in silver for whatever you eat and whatever you drink. And as my colleague Harold Burkhart reminds me, I mean, silver had an exact worth. Silver had a weight. I mean, there was no double dealing with silver. You knew what you were getting. There was no pulling the wool over somebody's eyes when the exchanges were made in silver. So God was saying, you're going to act with integrity with these people, even though you are stronger than them. Even though you could take what you want, you are going to pay for what they will give to you. So the issue becomes less who they are and more uh, who you are supposed to be. But let's say they aren't great people anyway. I mean, their descendants weren't great. Remember Esau? 
Esau was twin brother with Jacob. Esau was born first and then came Jacob. And, and the way things worked uh, in the ancient world, primogenitor, uh, the blessed family blessing and, and two-thirds of what the family had goes to the oldest son. But Esau blew it. He gave it away because he wanted a bowl of soup that his brother was making. I mean, he's not a genius. He's not worthy of this sort of land. But that's not an issue. Or let's go to Lot. Do you remember the story of Lot? Do you remember where he lived? He lived in Sodom, and he was considered one of the town leaders, like on the city council of the wickedest, wickedest city in the world. You, you want that on your resume when you get to the kingdom of heaven? I mean, Lot is not like Mr. Upstanding Citizen, or he wouldn't have gotten to where he is. But the issue is not, are these people good people? Do they deserve what they have? Don't I deserve it more? The issue here is God is so good That even though Esau and Lot had some checkered sorts of history, God would still keep a promise to them and give land to their descendants. Ultimately, in life, the issue isn't whether I deserve it or whether they deserve it. The issue is what has God given us because God is gracious and merciful and loving. Yesterday, I was uh, at a workshop in in, uh, state prison. And they were giving us statistics from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And one that jumped out at me was this, that in, in the state prison system today, the average level of education of the, of the offender is under eighth grade. Under eighth grade. I was raised in a family where after God, the most important value was education. And my parents paid to put five of us through college. And when I, ran, when I ran out of money my last semester in graduate school, they sent me more. Why weren't they raised in that family? What had happened if I would have raised in a family that either didn't value education or couldn't afford education? I mean, do I really deserve where I am and what I have any more than somebody else who right now is incarcerated? The thing gets a little cloudy when you realize that what we have is primarily a gift of God's goodness and less about what we do with it, though to be sure we have responsibilities to use wisely and well what God has given us. What if I really understood that everything I have isn't because I'm so smart or I did things in such a disciplined way, but simply because I was blessed by a loving God? I think if I realized that more often, I would hold the things that I do have a lot more loosely in my hands. I might just loosen the grip. Well, this raises the question for me, though, if God is so good and loving, why didn't God just give me more, though? If God loves me so much, why didn't God just not only give me what I have, but add to it? Give me the promised land and throw in Moab and Ammon and Sire as well. And I think part of the answer to that is what Roger was teaching the children. Sometimes God stops us from having things because of promises that God has made, either to others or promises to ourselves. So in other words, the reason they can't have the land of Lot and Esau is because God promised it to Lot and Esau. God didn't promise it to them. And sometimes I may want more than I have, but in order to have more than I have, I'm actually taking from someone else. And so the prohibition on my covetousness comes from God's promise that everybody will have enough. More than it comes from the fact that, for whatever reasons, God doesn't favor or love me at this moment. Often, God puts up a stop sign 
instead of a green light because God has made a promise to us or to others. Look at the Ten Commandments. Eight of them are in the negative. Eight of them stop us from doing something. But if you stop yourself from doing these things, look at the life that follows. Stop yourself from committing adultery and you'll have a better marriage and family life and your family won't suffer. Your children through the generations. Stop yourself from lying and we'll have better relationships with other people. Keep the Sabbath day, which is not so much as a stop sign as a boundary marker. Keep the Sabbath day and you'll be a lot healthier for the other six days of the week. Often God puts up a prohibition because God has promised us life and knows that the only way into that life is if we don't go off the path toward things that will take our life. Rabbis used to argue, why should we obey the 613 commandments that God gives us in the first five books of the Bible? And one of the answers was, because it's better for you. Keep these commandments, you'll live longer. And, and that makes sense to me. That's just what I was arguing. Second one is this. Uh, because it separates us from the pagans. If we keep these laws, if we live a certain way, they'll see that we're different from the way they are and they'll be attracted to our God. Makes sense to me. A third argument was this. Keep them because God said to. And you don't need to understand why God has done some things for you and then kept other things from you. The important thing is that you follow God no matter what. That makes some sense also. But after reading the story, I would add one more. Why do you do what God tells you to do? Why do you avoid what God tells you to avoid? And the answer is this. Because you are grateful for everything that God has already done for you. I think one of the real motivations for obedience in our life is just simply gratitude. That we realize if it weren't for God, we wouldn't be able to sit in this room and talk about God. I mean, think about it. The very fact that we gather here this morning is an amazing gift from God because there's a whole lot of people who couldn't and cannot for one reason or another. God loves us, has given us everything we need, and when God tells us to stay away from an area, it's only because God is going to give us something better or is giving someone else what they need by holding us back. What if we learned to live with what God had already given us? The um, people in India have a parable. It's a parable about a town. And several centuries ago, they had a land rush of sorts. They advertised to the neighboring areas uh, that the land in, around their town was available. But the deal was you could have as much land as you could set your foot on in one day. Start at sunrise, walk as much of the land as you can, and if you get back before sunset, the land belongs to you. So a few people accepted that challenge. One was a guy whose name was Pacom, and he thought this was a great deal. So he got there the night before so he could start bright and early. He kind of started out at a trot, put his feet everywhere he could, looked up, saw it was midday, kept going, saw it was getting a little later, and he thought, I can, I can, I can take some more steps this direction, get just a little more land than what I have now. So he did, and then he realized it was going to get dark soon. So he broke into a run all the way back to the village. And the villagers, as sunset neared, gathered round to see if he would make it across the finish line in time. And sure enough, he came across the finish line. They cheered him wildly. He had gathered more land than anybody else. But as a result of his exertion and his run to get back to beat the deadline, Pacom fell over dead. Stone cold dead. So the people of the village, under the elders' guidance, went and dug a plot about Six feet deep. 
and put it in, put him in it, buried him. And the elder reminded the rest of the villagers that about six feet of land is all anybody really needs. What? What would happen if we learned to live with what, in what God had given us rather than running all around trying to get more? 